coming up on Better Place Project. The way we see the world is shaped and guided by the by the composition of the atmosphere that our eyes evolved in, right? This is like, what it does is it takes eyesight, takes vision, it displaces it from this like central organism called me, and it puts it back as an ecological dynamic in the world. The world actually creates vision. I, I'm using that vision, right? But it's not just me that sees the world, it's the world that has afforded this sensory apparatus that allows me to see it. It's, it's an, it is an ecological dynamic. It doesn't just come from me. It comes from the world and me together. And that, that really grounds me in the world again. That's like, oh, like, and also not only that, but it just makes it such a more fascinating thing to experience. To see the world means you and the world are seeing it together. Make the world a Make the world a better place. Hey, hey, I'm Steve Make Norris. Welcome to Better Place Project, where each week we shine a light on Make amazing humans from every corner of the planet who are doing extraordinary things to help make the world a better place, including sharing their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, more purposeful lives. How did we get here? And where do we go from here? In this five-part series, ecologist and founder of Oika, Dr. Rich Blundell, takes us on a journey of the cosmos. But this is way more than a history lesson about the universe. This is about you and me and everyone and everything around us, how it all came to be and how we are all connected. You see, Nature has intelligence, a magnificent, sublime, complex intelligence that science is just now beginning to understand. What would it be like if we felt that intelligence inside of us? In this series, you will discover how to tap into and feel that innate intelligence that is already inside of you right now. Once humankind begins to understand this, to know this, to feel this, we will be living in a very different, much more beautiful world. So join us on this journey. It just might change your life. Welcome to part four, Animalia, where things are really starting to happen here on Earth after millions of years being frozen solid. We talk more about this cool little lipid membrane that will be an essential element of all life on our planet. It lets the world flow into us and out of us and the relationships that sustain us. Plants begin to evolve, animals arrive. In this episode, we're gonna talk about the connection between the salt in the oceans and the salt in your tears. And after listening to this episode, you may never look at your vision the same way again. Now, for those of you out there who, like me, are not science nerds, please don't worry about or trip on the science. Just kind of let it wash over you and take in the overall message here because it's a very powerful one that can truly make a difference, a beautiful difference in your life. 
To get the most out of this episode, we recommend that you pause this podcast right now and scroll down into the episode notes and watch the short video called Animalia. And we'll meet you right back here. And now I bring you part four with Dr. Rich Blundell. Welcome to week four, Rich. How are we doing? Hey, Steve. Good to see you again. It's good to be back. I'm excited. Me too. Can you get us up to speed? What have we covered up to this point in weeks one, two, and three? And what are we going to talk about today in Animalia? Sure, I can do that. Uh, and the reason we're doing that, by the way, is because we want to make sure we keep this idea of continuity going, that there is a grand sweeping arc of evolution that reveals a deep continuity. And so that's why it's important to recap these things. So we started, we actually started before the Big Bang in the, in the mystery of it all. And we paid homage to mystery, but then we jumped into it. We talked about the Big Bang. We talked about the quantum fluctuations that then get revealed by a by a, a cosmic baby picture that we took with a satellite that shows the cosmic microwave background radiation. And the thing that really jumped out to me as an ecologist was how the cosmic microwave background radiation is actually in ecology. And I can say that because what I see there are differences in the temperature of the light. And it's because of those differences that the first relationships could be in the universe. And the thing that emanates out of those relationships is a creative force. So there's something going on in those relationships that creates complexity. And in the case of the cosmic microwave background radiation, the complexity that it creates are stars. And so then we got into the second week, which was called Celestia, which is an account of how those fundamental forces of the universe create the first kind of pseudo organisms. And so we talked a lot about stars and galaxies and supernovas. These are a kind of precursor to living things because they, they live out their lives. They have a kind of metabolism and they kind of reproduce in their own ways. And so that's what brought us through the second week. Um, and then in the third week, we switched over to our planetary system which is a system that evolves around our star. We call it the sun, but it's really a star. And we talked about how those same forces of differentiation and relationship can create new kinds of organisms like planets. And planets have their own unique and emergent metabolic processes. We talked about how the, the Earth itself, because it creates thermal and chemical gradients, just like the cosmic microwave background did, but in a different way, um, can create new forms of, of molecular structures. And actually we watched how something like life could emerge from those very simple proto-living um, structures. And one that was really important that came up was this thing called the phospholipid bilayer. I should, we should put in a little yay whenever we say that. <laughs> I love really that in important. the video. And, you, and, and in this video, it comes up again. And once yep. again, you know, your editors or you put in yay again. <laughs> I so, did. Clearly was huge. Yeah. Well, it is huge. And it will come up again uh, because it's it turns out to be such an essential part of what life does today. Um, and so that brings us up to, I think we ended last time at around what we call the Huronian glaciation event, which was about 
2.2 billion years ago, the, the earth froze over. Life essentially went dormant. It didn't really go dormant, but it did have to come up with new ways, you know, beneath the ice because um, the planet had frozen probably almost pole to pole. Um, anyway, so that would end that would end the Earthea episode. And that's where we pick up the story with this this one that we're calling Animalia. And the video starts with the mixing and assembly of amino acids deep under the mm -hmm. ice. Mm -hmm. Going on inside those those protocellular structures that we call vesicles. Yep. Got it. Now, this is clearly still a very harsh, difficult time for anything to survive or to exist, correct? It is. But you know what? Before we go into that harsh and difficult time, I want to say one yeah. more thing that'll set us up. Please. And it's this. And I want to say it now because before we dive into this Animalia period, I want to just reiterate that what Oika is, what we're talking about here, is a kind of new synthesis of scientific knowledge. We've been talking a lot about science. These videos, they cover a lot of science. But what we're really doing here is we're coming up with a new interpretation of that science that takes it all into account. We're stitching together a story here, and then we're interpreting the meaning of that story. And the reason I bring this up now is because in this episode, in this film, and in this podcast, that process of reinterpreting the science through an ecological lens is going to become really relevant. We're going to really be able to feel and see how that new interpretation works. And the reason is because now that we're dealing with animals, we're not dealing with molecules or, or neutron stars, things that we can't identify with. We're starting to deal with the kind of creatures and organisms that we encounter on a daily basis that, 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 that we can, in some sense, identify with. And so that's why it's really important to remember what we're doing here. We're doing an ecolog a new synthesis of an interpretation of all the science that we currently know. So anyway, so yes, yeah, so, so let's get back to that that still rather harsh and uh, at least cold at this point um, sure. world. Um, in, in fact, do you know, out of curiosity, about what was the average temperature on Earth around this time period? Well... I have no idea. And it would be a really hard thing to, you know, to, to quantify. I suppose we could model it. But one thing we do know is that uh, it was frozen. It was frozen at the surface. However, the, the planet, and okay, so this is another thing I need to really highlight is that, hmm. and I forgot to do it in, in the Earthea video, that the planet is really taking on an active role in driving the processes of life. That's in, that's a, This is a huge insight because what it does is it erases the bright white line that we normally put between geology and biology, right? And, and, and we do that through putting something in the middle called chemistry. But the point is that all of these are on a continuum. And so while we don't know the overall average temperature of the planet, what we do know is that it was cold at the surface, but probably hot down below, down below the oceans, you know, in, in the interiors of continents, there's a huge thermal gradient, which again, just like in the cosmic microwave background, thermal gradients are an engine for complexity, an engine for life. So uh, that, I guess that's what I want to say is that in, in every 
instance of these of, of the last video, which was Earthea, and this one, Animalia, the Earth is playing a a an like an active agental agential role in the creation of life. So, <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry that didn't answer your question, it, but no, no, that was that was great. But you know, but as you're as you're talking about that, Rich, and you mentioned that here we've got this frozen Earth, but deep down at its core, it was it was hot. That made me think of the micro microwave background, you know, Good. radiation. Absolutely. That that is this not a perfect example of relationships of you know the the blue you know cooler you know uh, uh, temperatures and the hotter warmer temperatures you know is 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 a relationship that can set I, all of this up. Can I put you on the spot and quiz you, please? What is, what is that? What concept have we talked about that that we talked about that? that describes how a phenomena like a thermal gradient can happen at one scale, but then also show up as a pattern on another scale. Do you remember what that was? Fractals. Right? Like the fact that the fact that there's this thermal gradient that happens at the, at the scale of the cosmic microwave back, background radiation, then it shows up again at the scale of a planet or a solar system. And remember, it was in the accretionary disk too. There was that differentiation. That's a, that's a fractal showing it. <laughs> I love how you say that. Remember, Steve, it was in the accretionary disk. Of course it was. I mean, of course it was. You forget. I am a total layman here just coming along for the ride. But uh, no, but you got it. You got it. But what you did, the important thing was that you noticed the fractal. You saw the fractal that was happening at the scale of the planet and also at the scale of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Same as when you talked about, you know, your, your arm out in front of you and your hands and the tree right. branches and the celestial stars and and the, or what have you. And so. every fractal, remember, is a reminder. Every fractal is a bridge that reveals the continuity between things. Right? Got it. Okay. A lot of little digressions here. Sorry about that. Yep. Nope. It's all good. Okay. Tangents are, are awesome. Okay. So we've now got a frozen earth, but perhaps warm on the inside or hot on the inside, what happens next? Well, eventually, um, the, you know, the conditions that brought about the freezing subside and the planet begins to warm. Uh, life has survived. It's gone through a bit of a bottleneck at this point, um, but it, it did survive. And then once the conditions for life return, conducive to life, it, it, it goes nuts. Like it, it takes the opportunity, which, which should show us that like life really wants to happen, right? So because the minute that it becomes more conducive to life, we get this flourish of activity, flourish of new relationships. And so down beneath the sea during that time, we see this very um, important event um, that um, is not recorded so much in the fossil record, but it's recorded in the biological record. It's actually recorded in our cells, in the way our cells have differentiated over time. So what we've got basically at this point are two major kinds of organisms. The most simple, which are we call the archaea, which are those simple proto, not proto cells, but they're living things, but they, they don't have a high complexity factor. And then we have also bacteria, which are the things that are photosynthesizing and, and um, they're more complex. But at some point, in this warming period, when the complexity factor gets ramped back up, a very interesting thing happens. There are these free living um, cells that um, 
end up going into a very unique relationship with the other cells. So here's the way we think of it. We think of these little free living bacterial cells that get encapsulated into some of the archaea cells. So remember that phos and the phospholipid bilayer here plays an important role. Remember I, I, the thing that I said about them, because they are lipids, they're kind of like oily, they're miscible, which means that they can, they can pass through each other. And so what we think happened is that these little um, free living bacteria got incorporated into a larger archaea organism. And the result, the emergent thing that happened is a new kind of organism that we now call a eukaryote. So all animals and plants alive today on the earth are eukaryotes. A eukaryote is a kind of organism whose cells have specialized membrane-bound organelles within their cytoplasm, within, within the cell. The big one that everybody can see is the nucleus. Um, the nucleus of the cell is where you know, genetic uh, material is stored. And then there are these little things you might remember from high school, these things called mitochondria. We think of them as like the, um, the power plant of a cell. They create energy, they create ATP. And they also, um, they're active also in some protein synthesis. Okay, so you've got this cell bound by a membrane and inside that cell is a new cell. We now call it a mitochondria and you've got a nucleus. You've got this differentiation. Remember this happened at the, yep. this happens again and again, differentiation leads to, and so that's what's going on now in, in down there in these big um, uh, unicellular organisms living in the ocean, floating around and, um, and all kinds of really complex things evolve over millions of years. Um, so yeah, this is after, you know, the great oxygenation event, photosynthesis gets ramped up again. We start to see oxygen building up in the atmosphere. And um, so what we're seeing now on the earth is that it's mostly unicellular organisms, big single cells that have within them specialized organelles. Hold on, but I want to actually want to stop here. And, and actually what I want to do is to take this science that we know about how the mitochondria became part of the eukaryotic cell. And I want to do that thing where we re-examine it through the ecological lens. Because there's three ways to interpret that relationship, right? You could either say that the big cell consumed the little cell, but that isn't what happened because the little cell continued to live inside the, the big cell. Or you could say that the little cell parasitized the big cell, but that didn't happen either because it's not tapping into its resources and you know hurting it it's actually helping it so what we have is this new emergent relationship that we call endo is this the okay you're talking about endosymbiosis you're not talking about that it, the coalescing that you talk about in the video well after the coalescing you know the coalescing was 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 um afforded by the membrane the membrane okay. allowed the coalescing to happen okay once it's in there it turns out that these two organisms can actually help each other survive. One can produce energy. The other one can do genetic, you know, genetic um, heredity and, and reproduction and protein synthesis. So my point there is though, the new kind of relationship is endosymbiosis. It's, it's not about competition. It's about cooperation. And it sure. turns out that that idea, okay, much more important than co competition. What, 
you know, when Darwin said survival of the fittest, actually, he never said survival of the fittest. That was his his quote unquote bulldog, um, uh, Herbert Spencer. But the point is, he never said survival of the fittest. He did later. But the point is, what he really meant was not survival of the fittest, but survival of the most fitted. And in this case, cooperation is more fitted to survival than competition. Mm -hmm. We've come to think that competition is how evolution happens. And yeah, it's part of it. But cooperation is just as big and sometimes even bigger of a driver of evolution and survival. That's really important. We need to be really appreciating how cooperation, as evidenced in this endosymbiotic event, can really drive life because we're all eukaryotes. We all carry now that idea of cooperation in every one of our cells. Like here it is. Like we all could be expressing this, this intelligence. What a reminder to us all that it's in our best interest to cooperate in every aspect of our lives. Well, I, I'm not sure if it's every aspect, but in our current moment, I'm pretty sure that we would all benefit from more of it. Like, I don't think it's necessarily always the best option, but it certainly is right now. You know, that's that's what I'm that's mm-hmm. the point here is that the Kairos, the chirotic moment, this 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 crisis that we're living through requires deep intelligence of cooperation. Now, in another time, you know, in the past, competition may have been the option. But right now, to ensure the survival of of us, I think co- cooperation is is a is a. We should be looking at it seriously, and this is one way to do it. So, well said. We've got now this organism that that has all this complexity. Um, the ice is now melted. Oxygen is accumulating in the uh, in in the atmosphere. Okay, and now another really interesting thing starts to happen. Um, first of all, we've we've sort of seamlessly crossed into the RNA world, okay, and the DNA world. RNA and DNA are molecules, proteins that um, actually they're, mo- they're crystals actually that can carry information. Okay, they record information in a in a purely like molecular format. They are a kind of memory. You know, a computer has a memory, right? We use magnetic or or digital bits to record and store memory. Brains do it somehow in neuron synapses and patterns of firing. Well, there's another way to store memory, and that is in molecules. So there's a, the earth has developed this way of having a kind of memory, a kind of proto-memory that's purely molecular. doesn't necessarily require life to do it, but we're, we're using that we're using the raw materials made available to us to store information. That's the bottom line. Here's my point with this, that we've all heard of like cyber, uh, like cyber Monday. I think that's like the day everybody goes shopping between Thanksgiving Or, or we think of like cyber, like as in terms of technology, like computers are cyber, cyber, um, like cyber criminals use computers to, to, but what cyber is really referring to is the idea that information can control a system. That's what cybernetics is. It's systems that are coordinated, managed, and that evolve through the transfer of information. 
that's what's that's this is what was figured out by 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 those early organisms was how to use information okay in a novel way to to create proteins to to do more efficient uh um cell replication this is what this is what it is we're talking about cybernetic systems embedded within other cybernetic systems that's what that's what has evolved at this point so um i know this is getting kind of complicated but you have to kind of imagine you know somewhere in the shallow oceans that there are these cells they're mixing they're interacting with each other and at some point all of these things come together and what emerges is a cell that's not a single cell it's now a multi-cell multicellularity evolves and it evolves because cells can specialize or differentiate again here it is here's biology doing differentiation just like the solar system did just like the the planet did and what i think multicellularity is is a kind of life insurance policy because when you have specialized cells you know or multi cells one cell can die and that that means that the life of the organism can still continue still survive yeah, yeah. you talked about that in the in the film yeah yeah so there's this there's this will to live you know and it's built into the systems and anyway so you've got multicellularity happening once you've got multicellularity and specialized cells this is actually really cool you have to think about there's this there's this uh, faunal assemblage. There's this fossil assemblage that we, it's called the Ediacaran, the Ediacaran fossils. And what we see are the first like large assemblages of cells that look like an animal. They they're Dickinsonian. They're called these simple. They look kind of like a big pancake, but they have ridges and they have cell differentiation, and they can actually move. They can they can actually use the cells that they have differentiated cells in order to move this is really important because when an organism can move it can change its aspect it can change its perspective on its environment and so what ends up happening is that this idea that you can move in order to in order to like learn this is what it's about this is what movement is about this is what sensory motor movement is about it's about an organism able to move from one habitat to another one in order to better ensure its survival, right? This is kind of like a deep intelligence. It's, you get these simple animals that have a musculature that can now move in a way that makes them survive better, right? That requires all kinds of new kinds of coordination amongst the cells. And one of the ways that they do it, this is brilliant. You get these early organisms living in this saltwater environment. Salt water is an electrolyte. That means it can carry an electrical charge. And so what do the organisms do that live in that environment? They, they adopt that. They adopt the capacity to conduct electrical signals in their cells in order to move their bodies, in order to learn, in order to thrive. Okay, so we've just like crossed this threshold. This is no longer about some little single-celled organism photosynthesizing now we've got a real animal we've got an animal that knows how to move that can coordinate its movement using the the properties of the saltwater environment that it's in it's now adopted that into its body and but and guess what that's why our bodies still do that i mean think about it 
our blood is salty, our tears and our sweat, they all have this a salinity that's that's sure do, th- yeah. that's similar to the ocean. That's not an accident. It's because our lineage goes back to organisms that learned how to use that salinity to, you know, to generate electrical fields. By the way, those electrical fields are the same elect- electromagnetic properties of the early universe, the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's what microwave radiation is. It's electromagnetism. The point is now we've got this organism that can use all of these cosmic phenomena to to learn and to move and to thrive that's now still in us. Like we all carry around that history. We carry around that memory of of, of those early organisms. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really a lot. cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but see, this is what I mean. It's like, this is what I mean by taking that different perspective on things. It's like, once you see how relationship is what's driving this creativity, you realize that that your relationships are also driving this creativity or not. And that's kind of my proposal here is that there's a way to be in right relationship with this intelligence and not right relationship. It's up to us to now figure out how to be in right relationship. And I think that telling this story is a way to find new ways to be in right relationship. So, well, and I think it always feels comforting to have a clear understanding of what we're made of and you know where we come from and and what you're saying rich makes perfect sense i know that i'll never feel the same way after a sweaty workout you know when i feel the sweat you know coming off of me and uh, but but you're right it all goes back to to you know early life and where we came from and uh and salinity played a huge role in in all of that Mm -hmm. for sure and and it's one thing to like know this it's one thing to like know the propositional knowledge the the concepts it's another thing to feel them to experience things and this is why this is what we i try to promote is taking these concepts and making them lived experiences you can so that we can feel them every day so so that's what we've got we've got life now starting to evolve and when this happens we're going to jump ahead here to like 520 million years ago, 540 million years ago in a period called the Cambrian explosion. So once, once this multicellularity thing happened, once specialized cells and locomotion and new ways of sensing the environment um, emerged, we get this explosion of life forms. In fact, it's called the, the Cambrian explosion. And um, so you can see it. This is when like the trilobites came on the scene, which are these little like arthropod type creatures that lived or scurried around on the seafloor. We get um, we get big, complex, predatory, not big, but big in trilobite scale. They're probably, you know, probably 10 to 20 centimeters long. These things called anomalocaris, which are these if you Google anomalocaris, you'll see what they they're just these crazy creatures. Um, so that's what we have happening now. Um, on, uh, do we have plants yet? Um, not yet. They are now just beginning to, um, uh, they're just beginning like algae and there's a whole other line of evolution now that's that becomes plants. By the way, <laughs> uh, paleontologists and, and biologists are like in a frenzy right now because there's all this new information that's coming about how these things evolve. It's not, n- nowhere near as simple as we once thought. But yeah, plants are beginning to now colonize the land, move up onto the land, and animals will soon follow. But one thing I want to maybe spend a little bit of time with is, uh, before we get up onto terrestrial organisms, are just the evolution of eyes. 
Um, it's and this is something that the trilobites, you know, started to perfect early on. Um, with and and again, what these organisms do is take the raw materials that they're living in, the, the environment that they're living in, the medium, which has a lot of cal calcite evolved in it, um, calcium carbonate, and they use they they take that calcium carbonate to make their lenses. So, if you look at like um, creatures that have compound eyes, often they're using calcite as the lens. But the point is just this, that, so, you know, I wake up every morning, you know, my eyes are closed. And when I wake up and I open my eyes, what I try to do is think about what seeing actually is. Like, what is this thing that we call vision? Well, how do I say this? By telling the story in this way, by showing the deep continuity and how the earth and cosmic phenomena are all playing a part in the way that life evolves, you begin to realize that when you open your eyes, it might feel like you are seeing the world. But what's probably more accurate to say is that the world is seeing itself through you. Like, our eyes didn't evolve um, um, independently from the environments in which they evolved. The early eyes, because they were all underwater, because they evolved with lots of calcium, calcite around, they evolved to have, and that creates a kind of vision. That, that The evolution of eyes creates a kind of vision. When we get into terrestrial animals and how eyes evolved, it's a different, it's a different process. And so, for example, human eyes, evolved in the atmosphere of oxygen, which is new because of the great oxygenation event. And what that oxygen does is it filters sunlight in a certain way. So we have this atmosphere that filters the radiation coming from the star in a certain way, such that when it reaches the ground, it has a certain wavelength. Our eyes evolved to see that wavelength. That's why we can't see the cosmic microwave background radiation. What we see is a very narrow sliver of light that we call visible light. But there's all kinds of other flavors of light out there. We just can't see them because our eyes evolved in this very narrow band of visible light. That's why we have to tune the satellite to a different, to a different frequency in order to see it. The point is that the way we see the world is shaped and guided by the, by the composition of the atmosphere that our eyes evolved in, right? This is like, what it does is it takes eyesight takes vision it displaces it from this like central organism called me and it puts it back as an ecological dynamic in the world the world actually creates vision i i'm using that vision right but it's not just me that sees the world it's the world that has afforded this sensory apparatus that allows me to see it it's it's an it is an ecological dynamic it doesn't just come from me it comes from the world and me together and that that really grounds me in the world again that's like oh like and also not only that but it just makes it such a more fascinating thing to experience to see the world means you and the world are seeing it together you know it's like I don't know. I mean, I, I know this yeah. sounds out there, but it's once no. You as you're as you're saying this, Rich, you know, I'm smiling ear to ear because it's 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 so cool to hear 
what you're saying, you know, coming from science, coming from an ecologist, coming from a scientist, you know, because so much of everything you just said, innate intelligence, spiritual leaders for thousands of years yeah. have used very similar languages. I think what you said was uh, it's more accurate to say that the world sees through our eyes. And and when you when you said that, it, you know, I immediately went to one of my favorite meditation teachers is David G. And he, one of his mantras that, uh, well, it's not his mantra, but an old ancient Sanskrit mantra is Aham Brahmasmi, which mm-hmm. is, I am the universe. And, you know, the world seen through our eyes, or as you just said, we are seeing it, you know, together. And again, we've had discussions with, on this podcast with, you know, Dr. Kiro O'Keefe, you know, an ex, you know, Stanford, you know, professor that, you know, walked away from academic, academics to, um, you know, pursue, you know, the, the world of non-duality and, mm. and, and all of us being one. And, but that whole mantra, Aham Brahmasmi, is, you know, and it, I think it's, it's no accident that you just use the word, um, what was the word you, you mentioned a moment ago? Gosh, not insignificant, not, uh, um, I can't remember the, the word that you, that you mentioned, um, but something having to do with us being, you know, connected and, and Aham Brahmasmi is basically that I am the universe. I'm not separate from it. So therefore, the power of the universe, the knowledge, the innate, the intelligence is all within mm. me because we are one and the same. Yeah. So I think what you're kind of identifying there is too, is like, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those ideas come from the East and um, which doesn't have the same trajectory as the West in terms of science, in terms of like the exactly. way we do reductionist science in the West. Um, but I do think that um, Western science is now beginning to confront or come face to face with, or have to, you know, have to deal with the, the deep intuitions that come from other lineages that come from, you know, this is, this is a, this is an idea called consilience that when you arrive at an idea through a, through a line of inquiry, and then some other line of inquiry that's completely independent of the one that you're on also arrives at that, that idea, that that idea should be really examined. It should really hold a certain kind of privilege and we should look at, we should try to understand that idea. And I think that's what you're seeing. That's what you're talking about. There is the consilience that, that, that there is this intuitive knowing of this deep, deep continuity. And now science is just kind of coming around to, well, I shouldn't say science. I should say some, some elements that come from the scientific community like me, you know, are starting like to, radicals like you, yeah, yeah, renegades <laughs> like me, that uh, that are willing to like see the value in that, that are willing to see the share the, the value as opposed to just the um, the reductionist value, more like the holistic value. You know, that that's all really I'm doing is putting the science back together again. That's been taken mm-hmm. apart by disciplinarity. Um, so yeah, and you know. I'm often accused of like using spiritual language, but I've kind of given up on, on avoiding it because it's, it's kind of inescapable. Uh, and, and, but it, I, I do find it fascinating that we can arrive there 
purely through scientific knowledge too. Like that, that these, these things are converging. And I think just in time, I think that, 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 that convergence is just like, look, and the reason I say that is because I see it time and time again in the history of the universe, that things happen based on some intelligence that's driving the process. And I think what that intelligence is driving right now is the convergence of those Eastern spiritual ideas and Western science. That's part of it. it, it it's, it's, it, I don't see any conflict with the way that science has revealed what trilobites have taught us and what it's teaching us now. Like what, so. Nor do I. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, I think it's really exciting to like, to, to, to find myself in this position where it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, all I really know is science, but wait a minute, you're telling me I'm a Buddhist. I don't even really know what a Buddhism is, but, you know, but I'm told that that's a very, I hear that a lot. You know, I hear things like that a lot. And so that's very, uh, that's very exciting to hear. Well, in a common denominator, whether it's um, from the Eastern world or the Western world, whether it's from a spiritual leader or from a scientist, mm. it, what's, you know, both sides, both perspectives can just go to a place of awe yeah. and wonder. And isn't that kind of what Oika is all about? It is, plus gratitude and joy and a sense of belonging and a sense of hope. Like these are the things also that I think emerge from this particular story. And this a lot of reasons for that that I haven't really talked about, but things like, I think I, I mentioned it on one of our previous podcasts a while back, how there are deep resiliencies, deep resiliences in these ecological systems that we really don't even know how to, to appreciate. And, um, but once you start sensing that resilience, you start, you start realizing that that resilience is going to come in handy. Like, like the intelligence because we can't really, we don't know how to appreciate it, but it's there, it's in reserve and it will come into play for our benefit, but only if we decide to align with it. Like that, that's the key, the key. That's what this work is all about. It's about getting us to wake up to that, to that intelligence and deciding to align with it. Cause if we can do that. And cooperate. And cooperate with it. Exactly. Now we're talking about real like deep solutions as opposed to whack-a-mole, you know, band-aids on symptoms. We're talking about deep solutions to perennial and systemic problems. The intelligence is there. We just need to decide. We need to have the will to, to ally with it, to get into right relationship with it. That's, that's the work. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like rich, it not only can bring about deep solutions, but take us on a path further evolutionary wise as as well mm. and and i i truly believe that we are on the cusp of of just a this consciousness revolution that you hear some of the things that are that 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 we're facing in our world today climate change for example we don't have a whole lot of time i mean they're saying 1.5 degrees you know, Celsius is is basically the tip, tipping point to where there's, you know, no return. And 
the lessons are right here in front of us. It seems to me it's time to, as you like to say, get right with nature. It's time to embrace curiosity, embrace compassion, embrace gratitude, creativity, joy, cooperation, if for no other reason than for our own survival. Yeah, well, that's, that is purely consistent with the story that we've been laying out. You know, the, the trilobites did not see their demise coming um, because they just, they didn't have, they didn't have the cognitive capacities. They didn't have the, you know, the foresight to do it. We might, you know, and I think that's what you're talking about when you talk about, when you talk about awakening these, these capacities, these competencies, I think that's, that's where we are. And, um, you know, I'm still hopeful that we can do it. We just need to coordinate and care. We need to figure out how to care about this stuff. And hopefully what this story does is it, it puts us in this, it puts us in this story. And if we're in this story, we should, we're more inclined to care about this story. And I think that's, that's what I'm trying to do too. I mean, there's a lot on our shoulders. You know, we've inherited this whole story. We've inherited all the accumulated intelligences of our ancestors all the way back to the Big Bang. Um, yeah. And so do we really want to be the ones to drop the ball? Well, you know, maybe, but I'm going to do my best to at least help us see what it is we're doing and what we're not doing. So, yeah. I love it. Now, where does niche construction fit in all of this yeah so um you bring up a concept that is part of the um oika curriculum i guess we could call it uh this idea of niche construction and we, we're seeing it actually play out here in a big way like we were just talking about the cambrian explosion and the trilobites and the evolution of eyes when i talk about the evolution of eyes and how we see this is a great example of niche construction because what it is is this it's niche construction by definition is how an environment shapes an organism, and then the organism shapes the environment, and they're in this reciprocal, cyclical relationship. Give and take. Yeah. yeah. When Whenever somebody talks about niche construction, I, I listen to how they're saying it. Often, I will hear people say, niche construction is about how organisms shape the environment, and then the environment shapes the organism. I always say it the other way. Like, I'll say... It's how the environment shapes environment. the organism and then the organism shapes the Because what that does is it's sort of a signal to who do they put? It shows the hierarchy. You, yeah, yeah that's it a shows good point. what you prioritize. Do you prioritize yeah. the organism or do you prioritize the environment? I, I prioritize the environment because I see how it starts there. In other words, these things were, this niche construction thing was going on long before us. You know, yeah, the environment existed before, before the organism. Before the organism did, exactly. And so, but anyway, it's a really powerful idea because it, it doesn't just apply to like biological habitats. This is why I brought up cybernetics and information systems because niche construction also applies to cybernetic systems, to systems where information is what does the governing, it's what does the the, the coordination of the system information plays a role. What that means is that things like culture, like what is culture? Culture really, what it really is, is an expression of knowledge and beliefs and um, th things like that. It's 
culture is an expression of how information is interpreted in our minds, right? We shape the culture and the culture shapes us. And that's the kind of feedback loop that we're in right now. For, for better or worse, or for worse, right. and that's up to us to decide. But right now, we live in a culture that is, in many ways, threatening the biological foundations upon which that culture is built. The niche construction is not is not balanced. It's not um, it's not healthy. It's not symmetrical in a in a mutually beneficial reciprocal way. And what do we need to do to make it balanced? Well, my and pro- healthy. My proposal would be to reinterpret who we are as part of as an integral part of that system and that's what telling this i hope what telling this story does is it shows you in scientific terms also in narrative terms like i'm telling the story of this that we are an integral part of the earth and the cosmos you know, and nature as a whole and so i think by by knowing that and feeling that and living as if that's true which is the argument i've been trying to make that we will bring our niche construction system back into alignment with nature. And so that's what Oika is all about. It's about realigning nature and culture, the nature that's within us into the nature that's in our culture. That's not just, again, let's not go, let's not get Darwinian here and say, oh, it's just about competition and survival of the fittest and who, you know, he who wins with the most, who dies with the most twice wins. No, 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 that's, we're talking about endosymbiosis here. We're talking about the, the cooperation, the cooperation competitive advantage. Like, so I think that's how we do it. I think that's how we tell a different story about who we are, where we came from, and how we might participate in this creative life force that we've been talking about. Now is the time for us to really participate in a palpable way that we can feel it. We can feel how our participation mm-hmm. is reciprocating back. <laughs> this is, I know, I know how idealistic this all sounds. I do. But what else am we going to do? You know, what when you know this, you can't just like, hmm, interesting. You have to kind of live it, and you want to share it. So that's what I'm doing. I love it. And going back, gosh, almost a couple of years ago, um, we chatted on the podcast about inaction. Mm-hmm. Where does that play a role in the history of the cosmos? Okay, that's another concept. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, an action, or another way to say it is the inactive approach, is a way of acknowledging how our minds, the way we think, cognition or even consciousness, is shaped just like our eyes are shaped. So in other words, when we talked about the evolution of eyes and how it's the it's the atmosphere and it's the, the wavelength that's emitted by our star and it's the way that all these things come together to shape our eyes, the same thing can be said of the way we think. So consciousness itself is not ours alone. So we walk around thinking, I am me. I am me and the world is out there, right? Like that's the thought. Well, what an activism is showing is that there's a deep continuity, just like there is between eyes and and light. There's a deep continuity between mind and world. Like the world shapes our mind, right? So just in the same way we can say that it's not my eyes seeing, it's the world seeing through my eyes. We can also say the same thing about cognition. It's not just me thinking. It's the universe 
having through me yeah being aware of itself through this thing that it generated that's a different story about who we are right and activism is this idea that's coming out of cognitive science now it's the latest cognitive science it was formulated originally by uh, Antonio Damasio and picked up later by uh, Evan Thompson. I think this is one of those ideas that can be, that can be really powerful. Really. When you start to think that the way you think is really shaped and guided and in some ways an expression of the world, then you've really opened the door to a completely different relationship to the world. And so I think um, that's an important part of the um the quote unquote paradigm shift that we're currently going through love it any closing thoughts for the animalia period no i think what i want to do is to end this episode at around the time that humans were starting to become active so after the cambrian explosion there's this you know long period of continued diversification in the oceans Eventually, those organisms come up, they follow the plants up onto the land. Because we have an oxygen-rich environment, um, we, we see the evolution of like large multicellular organisms that don't require a surface for oxygen exchange. You know, when it was, the point is that we've, we've, we're, we're, we're evolving more complex metabolic pathways to generate energy because of that oxygen rich environment. Remember there was that catastrophe, the period of catastrophe when the atmosphere went from carbon dioxide rich to oxygen rich. Well, it's because that happened that now large animals can persist without that high oxygen concentration. You don't have an, you don't have an energy regime or a metabolic process capable of, of, of maintaining biomass. And so once you've got oxygen, you can have large multicellular organisms and they diversify in the atmosphere. And so this is, you know, so this is what was going on in the early earth, you know, through the Devonian and the Silurian, the fishes became um, theropods and insects and reptiles. And then the dinosaurs, of course, this long period of like highly specialized, complex, large, social organisms but then remember we talked about the um the formation of the earth and there was all those asteroids and planetesimals spinning around and smashing into the planet well one of those pieces must have gone on a long orbit somewhere out into the outer solar system and then it as it comes back around you know four billion years later at 65 million years ago it re-enters the atmosphere impacts with the planet creates this cascade of disruption that eventually wipes out the dinosaurs. But luckily, there was a little proto-mammalian creature that had been living in the shadows of the dinosaurs. And because it had evolved certain ways of being, in other words, it was it was social, it used mammary glands to feed its young milk because it had fur and could probably survive cold periods, it got a chance. So while the dinosaurs went extinct... Suddenly that opened up a niche and that niche started to construct this new mammal. And then this new mammal up to about 7 million years ago uh, had evolved. It evolved many things, but one of the things that evolved into was a 
uh, a primate, a uh, an early um, pre-hominid creature that probably lived in the trees. It was probably relatively social. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up the story uh, next week. As we finally uh, get to Earthlings. Right. That's where, we, that's where we pick up Earthling theory, which should hopefully tie a big bow on all of this and bring it all together in a meaningful way. Can't wait. It's going to be fun. Rich, this has been awesome again. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and thoughts with us. And we'll see you next week. Thank you, Steve. This has been a blast. Join us next week for part five, the conclusion of History of the Cosmos with Dr. Rich Blundell. How the innate intelligence of the universe is alive in you. Special thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tempoco. Our music was written and performed by Algian Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as that is the single best way to help the show and get the word out to more good humans. For behind-the-scenes info, please visit our website at betterplaceproject.org, where you can even click on the microphone in the lower right-hand corner and leave us a message or just stop by to say hi. And you can follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproject.org, and you'll find me at Instagram at Steve Norris Official. Look for small ways to be kind this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world.